Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Brooke Redden. I work on the film and TV conference programming team here at South by. And um, I'm, I'm very honored to introduce this panel today. Um, as you just saw, Pay or Die is a documentary that details the overwhelming struggle to pay for insulin in America. And um, it premiered here at South by yesterday. Um, it's an incredible film. And if you weren't able to catch it yesterday, I highly encourage you to do so later this week. I think there are a couple more screenings. So please go check it out. Um, this topic is also very personal to me. Uh, I have type 1 diabetes, and I was diagnosed when I was 25 years and 11 months old. So <laughs> on top of you know learning how to deal with this new diagnosis and chronic illness, I also was worried about uh, figuring out how to get health insurance once I was uh, kicked off my parents' plan in a few short weeks once I turned 26. So um, this is something that far too many of us have to deal with every day. So um, yeah, without further ado, I'd like to introduce the moderator for this session. Uh, he's a Texas state representative, a proud progressive, and is advancing legislation to cap insulin costs in uh, Texas. So please welcome Representative James Tallarico. Thank you. Um, it's an honor to be here with all of you, and um, for those that are not from Austin, welcome to Austin, Texas. I have the honor of representing this city in the Texas legislature, um, and I'm so excited to talk with this amazing panel, um, and I want to introduce them in just a second um, so we can talk about this powerful film and the issues that it um, brings forward into the national conversation. But before that, I just want to tell you a little bit about how I got here. Um, so when I was first running for the state house back in 2018, I decided to um, walk the entire length of my legislative district, um, which went from Round Rock, Texas, um, all the way to Taylor, Texas. Um, that's about 25 miles. And I wasn't too concerned about my ability to do it. I was a dumb 28-year-old and um, thought there was going to be no issues. And, you know, I go to Big Bend every year and wasn't worried about my ability to do the walk. Um, and uh, once I was about halfway through, I started to feel nauseous. Um, and when I got to the second town hall in Hutto, Texas, um, I threw up in the bathroom right beforehand. And I thought I must must be dehydrated. So I just tried to drink a bunch of water. Um, I felt better after I threw up. And so I just kept going because we were live streaming this thing, right? Um, and threw up a few more times um, along the way. Uh, finished the walk. I don't know how. Um, finished the last town hall. Um, and then I went home and basically slept for 36 hours. And my family got really concerned, um, took me to the ER. They um, took my blood sugar, and normal blood sugar for non-diabetics is 100 or less, and mine was 900. Um, and so I was in a state of diabetic ketoacidosis, and they said, so you're a diabetic. I said, I'm not a diabetic. No, you have the wrong chart, you know. And they said, well, we tested your blood sugar. And I don't really, didn't really know what blood sugar was, right, at that point. Um, and, and they told me that I had this disease. Um, after I got out of the hospital, I went to Walgreens to get my first 30-day supply of insulin, this new medication that I now needed to live every day. And it cost $684 for 30-day supply of insulin. Did not have that kind of money, put it on a credit card. Um, and once I was in the legislature, thankfully, I got state health insurance, which legislators in Texas get great health coverage. Um, a lot of politicians around the country have great health insurance. And I fundamentally believe every person in this country is entitled to that kind of great health insurance. Um, and so I passed a bill last session to cap insulin copays at $25 per prescription. Now that is only applies to folks with insurance. 
And Texas has the largest number of uninsured people in the country. So there's a lot more work left to do, but that's why I'm so excited that this incredible film premiered yesterday and why so many more people are going to see it and talk about it and know that this is an issue affecting so many people in our community. Um, so I want to give each of the panelists um, an opportunity to introduce themselves, tell you their story. Um, let's uh, start with um, the amazing filmmaker um, who created this, um, this piece of art that is going to move people to action. And we actually, um, Scott Ruderman and I, share a birthday. We were both born on May 17th. Um, uh, so he's an award-winning filmmaker and cinematographer whose work has been screened in film festivals around the world, as well as on Netflix, BBC, HBO, A&E, Hulu, and Discovery+. Plus. He was diagnosed with type 1 at 19 years old. And while he learned how to manage his diabetes, he also learned the harsh truth about unfair drug pricing in the U.S. and has struggled to pay for insulin ever since, aging off his parents' insurance coverage at 26. So please welcome Scott Ruderman. And Scott, tell us about your story. Hi there. Um, I just want to say thank you, everyone who came uh, to today's panel. Um, so my story, you know, I was I was diagnosed at a younger age um, and my dream to be a filmmaker, uh, to get into this world, you know, health insurance wasn't available. So I immediately knew that the cost was expensive and being in a position where, you know, I could have a camera and, and extend a voice uh, really kind of motiva motivated me to make this film. Um, so, you know, through the journey of making this film, it realized to me, I realized that, you know, this is a big issue and type one diabetes, insulin is really expensive, but we have a larger issue at, at risk is healthcare. Uh, a lot of people in this country are struggling to afford healthcare. Um, so that's kind of what really got us off the ground. Um, and even though this film follows the stories of people struggling to afford their insulin, it pokes a bigger issue in this country. And I think um, we're, we're in a world now where uh, voices are being heard. And with everything that's happening, we have, it's a time we need to actually step up and make change. Wonderful. Um, I think something you'll recognize about this movement for um, equitable health care in this country is that a lot of the people at the forefront of the movement, the activists and advocates on the ground, are usually moved by some deep pain in their life, something they've experienced, the harmful side effects of this broken, immoral system. Um, and I think that's true for Nicole uh, Smith-Holt, who is a policy advocate for insulin access and affordability in Minnesota and federally. And her son, Alec, tragically passed away after he was forced to ration his insulin. Nicole, thank you for being here. And tell us a little bit about your story and tell us about Alec. Yes. Can you hear me now? Okay. So in 2017, um, you know, my son just turned 26, uh, aged off of my health insurance, and he was a type 1 diabetic. And the first time he went to the pharmacy, he was asked to pay $1,300 for his one-month supply of insulin. And as a 26-year-old, you know, making, you know, okay money, just didn't have $1,300 and was too proud or too independent or too something to come and ask mom and dad for the money to buy his insulin. So he went home and he rationed. And uh, in, in 2000, 
2017, 2018, there was a study done that revealed that one in four type 1 diabetics actually ration their insulin. And unfortunately, Alec, playing Russian roulette with his life, not taking his insulin, he did pass away. So since the death of Alec, I have become um, an advocate for access to affordable insulin. I am the ambassador for T1 International, and we are a grassroots advocacy organization who is fighting for uh, you know, insulin for all. Uh, that is our goal, to provide you know, affordable insulin for all, no matter if you have insurance or not. And in Minnesota, you know, working through two legislative sessions with my representative, we were able to pass the Alex Smith Insulin Affordability Act, and that does provide an emergency program for people who, even if they're uninsured, will receive at least a 30-day supply of insulin for $35 or less. And then, um, you know, there's two parts to that program. Yeah. The second part to that program is a long-term affordable program for those that, uh, you know, are, are asked to pay more than $75 on their copay if they have insurance or somebody who meets the income eligibility. They could get a 90-day supply of all of their insulin for $50. So we have done incredible work in Minnesota, and we're hoping to replicate that in each and every state. I've worked with Colorado and Maine and have passed versions of Alex's bill in those two states, and have worked with advocates in Texas and California and several other states who also want to replicate the bill. But our goal, ultimately, is to pass you know, legislation at the federal level that is going to cap the price of insulin so that no matter what your insurance status is, you can afford insulin. And Bernie just recently announced a bill that would make that possible, but we have to have that you know, done at the federal level. So that's our, that's our goal. Wonderful. And I, yeah, I, I'm just constantly amazed that there are people who can transform that pain into something creative and beautiful and life-changing for other people. Um, and so thank you for, for being here and the work you, that you do. Um, our last panelist is Dr. Vincent Rajkumar, and he's a researcher and physician with the Mayo Clinic and an expert on drug pricing. Dr. Rajkumar, do you want to tell us a little bit about you and your story? Yeah, I am an oncologist, and you might wonder what, what I'm doing here talking about insulin. That's a puzzle even my colleagues have. Um, Dealing with um, cancer, um, I was uh, in the position of witnessing patients who are struggling to afford life-saving medications, including ones that I had done trials and developed uh, and got approved by the FDA. So it got me thinking, like, I have to think about why are prices so high? And the second point was, why is it so high in the U.S. compared to every other country. So I started looking at all of the causes, wrote papers, and was really focused on cancer drug prices for quite a while until I heard Alex's story. And that really moved me. It really was like a punch in the stomach. It was like, if it can happen with insulin, a 100-year-old drug, then, well, no wonder cancer drugs are expensive. So if you can understand why insulin is so highly priced, then maybe you can understand why cancer drugs are expensive, why every other new prescription drug is expensive. So I started to advocate for that. 
and write write contact people I knew and um, I've been very involved with prescription drug costs as well as healthcare costs overall um, and I do feel we've made progress that's really um, very encouraging I'm just so proud and thrilled to be part of this movie in a small way it is a very very powerful movie if anyone has not seen it yet please go and watch it tomorrow or the day after um, and I think Physicians have to dedicate themselves towards, you know, not just taking care of patients with their medicines and giving them the right prescriptions and the tests, but also, like Nicole told me when I called her a long time back, what would you advise physicians? She said, talk to your patients about access and affordability. Just stick, stick stuck to me. Because oftentimes we don't address those um, issues with the patients because oftentimes we don't know the cost of anything. So... I think I've made it a point that this is something that I should advocate for educating physicians to be aware of what things cost and when they're prescribing to know how they can help their patients truly get a full care, not just give the medicines and, and let them be. Wonderful. And something we're going to, attention we're going to navigate is um, between the systemic, you've already heard us talk about some of those things as a policymaker, that's where I tend to work, and the personal that these are individual people's lives, as you already heard Nicole talk about. So we just saw a clip. Um, Scott, this Kara is her name? The, yes, um, this was a clip of Kara, one of the characters in our film, and she's here with us. Kara, if you would like to stand Wonderful. up. And... Kara, we, we met Kara uh, kind of at the height of COVID, um, and we found her story very interesting because she was diagnosed during COVID. And, you know, she was going through a time where, you know, kind of a career change, but at the same time trying to understand how to manage this lifestyle. And Kara in her thirties had a life going for her and everything flipped. Um, and when you're newly diagnosed, you're, you're learning about how you're going to live being a type one diabetic. How are you going to manage this? Um, and the cost is not even there yet. But the reality of the cost is hindering over you. And this story is important because it shows how this issue really tarnishes, you know, a family, um, a young person. Um, so, you know, throughout the story, throughout Cara's story, we kind of follow her in this challenge of how is she going to get insurance? How is she going to afford it? Because when she was diagnosed, she was not even on insurance. Um, and they rushed her out of the hospital because she didn't have insurance and she had to figure this out on her own. Yeah. I, I, I remember when I was watching the movie that that was probably the clip that resonated most with me just because this does affect type one in particularly affects young people and, to have, and this is true of anyone with a chronic illness, the fact that you're going to have to deal with this thing for the rest of your life, right? Not just the medical side, which is your mortality knocking on the door every hour, every day, right? Um, which is psychologically a huge trauma to absorb, but then talking about how our system is not, is, is set up to work against you. Um, curious about how this resonated with, with, uh, with y'all and, and this clip in particular. Yeah, I found it, um, just chilling like you know personally Alec was by himself in the urgent care when he was diagnosed but I was on the phone with him and you know he was just distraught with this diagnosis 
but he got, you know, treated and released. And on release, they gave him, you know, a, a folder with probably 25 different, um, you know, handouts in it. Basically, he was instructed at, you know, he was diagnosed at 24, 24 year old, sent home, still had a blood sugar level of well over 300 because that was okay for him to drive himself home at that with a folder with some pamphlets on how to keep yourself alive and a stack of prescriptions. So he was instructed to go to Walgreens, fill these prescriptions, and then go home and keep yourself alive until you can get into an endocrinologist, which is a specialist, which is going to take several months to get your first appointment because, you know, we have a, we have a shortage of specialty, specialty doctors. Um, but he went to the pharmacy, and I think, you know, it had been probably you know, 10, 12 years since I had witnessed my son break down in tears. But when he left that pharmacy and called me and was crying in the parking lot, and he had insurance at this time, the amount of money that he had to pay just to fill that initial stack of prescriptions, he's like, Mom, I just had just to give them $350 to stay alive like this is and I, I said Alec did you give them your insurance card that was my first question did you give them the insurance card yep they had my insurance so it was 350 after the insurance now granted I don't know you know where we were within our deductible for that year or whatever but it is so expensive and then Multiple times I had to witness my son upset because, you know, as a new type 1, he was testing his blood sugar much more than he should have been or much more than the insurance company wanted him to test his blood sugars because he was running out of test strips at three weeks instead of it lasting four weeks. And then he would have to go to the pharmacy and they would have to sell him of a, a container of test strips without insurance, paying out of pocket $300 for test strips. And you know, it just that financial cost just wears on you mentally. And then when Alec went, you know, the first time without insurance and was asked to pay $1,300, and yeah, he could have put it on a credit card, he could have called mom and dad. But he didn't. He wasn't thinking, you know, and the level of stress that you feel when you have that burden of, you know, my life hangs in the balance because of this, this disease that I didn't ask for. I didn't do anything to cause. And now I'm asked to pay every single month to stay alive, you know. It's it's extremely stressful. Yeah, yeah, turns your world upside down. Um, Dr. Rajkumar, any thoughts on that clip? Yeah, I, I mean that, like you said, was one segment of the film that really touched me. Um, many many segments. This one uh, inclusive. 
uh, as you mentioned, two big things are like you suddenly give a diagnosis that is life-changing to a patient and all of the implications that follow. And then on top of that, you add the stress of the cost and all of the implications that follow with that. And the same thing happens with cancer patients. You give a new diagnosis of cancer and boom, like, you know, chemotherapy is so complicated and so expensive. So this happens in our country everywhere. Um, what it resolved me, I mean, the way it hit me personally is like I just told myself, like, you've got to be a better doctor. I mean, you just have to realize what's happening. And um, I just resolved it internally even more to try and be a, you know, a physician who knows both aspects. Yeah. And, and I think that's why that the clip resonated with me and the same with your story, Nicole, is it just, you know, I remember breaking down in tears in the ICU when they told me it was going to be the rest of my life. And just as a young, you know, I, I just, I was a lot stupider when I was 28 and like, I couldn't wrap my head around this was something I had to do for the rest of my life. Right. I was so used to problems being solved at least in a few months, maybe a couple of years, but this was now going to be a thing for the rest of my life. And that the system treated it as somehow something I took on. Like I bought a really expensive house, right? This disease that is purely genetic, right? Um, by chance. Um, and obviously it's not just diabetes. The entire system is, is unfair. So I want to talk a little bit about systems um, as a policymaker. So Nicole, let's start with you, given that your, your history in the legislative world, what have you learned through that advocacy, through navigating the political systems in this country in multiple states, what do you know now that you didn't know when you embarked on this journey? I hate big pharma. <laughs> Retweet. Uh, you know, being an advocate um, is hard work. Um, you know, big pharma infiltrates at the state and federal level, like you and I believe, I had no idea that they are actually worse than big tobacco in some aspects. Um, the money that they use, the leverage that they have, the influence that they have at both the state and federal level is overwhelming. They have unlimited amounts of money and they are not afraid to use it. Um, you know, they have paid lobbyists, what is it, 17 per member of Congress? That's unbelievable. Um, so for, you know, a grassroots advocate to walk in and try to influence their legislators to go against Big Pharma in any kind of way is terrifying. I mean, it is hard work, um, but I found that if you come prepared if you show up and you share your story, like personal stories, like actually move people to to actually do the right thing. Um, you know, I've been a part of so many hearings at both the state and federal level. I've kind of lost count of you know how many days I've spent at my state capitol and how many hearings that I've been at. But real life, true stories are actually so impactful that, you know, and, you know, before Alec passed away, I would have never, ever, ever thought about contacting my state or federal legislator and asking, just asking for change. Like, I did my civic duty. I voted. 
that was the extent of my political affiliation. Poli-sci course in college was the worst class I ever took. <laughs> Besides public speaking. Uh, but, you know, I have a relationship with so many people at um, my state capitol. And, you know, I have my state senators in my phone. I have, you know, Bernie Sanders I can call, you know, those type of people. And they're making real change. So they need to hear from you. Your reps, your senators, your congressmen, they need to hear from you. If you want change in your state, you can actually get it done. But you have to put the legwork in. You have to share your stories. Yeah, and I, and I want to level set because I know not everybody's an expert in this area. Um, it doesn't cost very much money to manufacture insulin, right? $10 per vial, something like that. So the only reason folks can't get insulin is because of greed. People are putting profits over lives, right? Money over human beings. It's pretty simple. And, and not all, every policy issue is that simple, but that's exactly what's happening here. Am I, Scott, uh, Dr. Rajkumar, am I off in that characterization? I agree, but I think Dr. Rajkumar could, could uh, explain it a little bit better. Well, I think the movie has a nice statement from the Canadian pharmacist, which basically sums it up. He says, like, uh, what did he say? I like helping... Americans who are coming to Canada to purchase drugs. Um, in your country, medicines are um, a business. It's handled like a business. In Canada, it's healthcare. And that's true. This, Whenever you have a for-profit industry and it's dealing with life-saving drugs, plus it's a monopoly and there is no price control, it's a recipe for this because they realize... <clears throat> that there is a vulnerable population that needs the drug to survive. It's not an optional item. Um, and they alone have the drug that can save your life. And there is no limits on either the launch price or the price over time. So the launch prices are increasing every year for every new drug. And prices each year on the same drug go up. Like your iPhone 1 is now $1,000 without any improvement. And that's not, I mean, that's not justifiable. Insulin price is not justifiable in any way. And I want to add to that. I think, you know, it didn't start this way. I mean, insulin, the founders of insulin sold it for a dollar purposely so no one can make a profit off it. Um, and, you know, we, we, come, we came a long way with insulin. But over the last 10, 20 years, insulin really hasn't changed. You know, the excuse on the other side is we're putting more, you know, research into it, research into it, but it hasn't changed. And I think the landscape of more people getting involved that the patients, us, are not exposed to um, is growing and the diabetes market is growing. Um, so there's a lot more money to be made. So, you know, we, we can talk a little bit about the landscape if you, if you want to, yeah. Pharmaceutical benefit managers and... I think it's important. I think it, it's good to kind of learn of who's involved. I mean, uh, if I have to give a summary of why drugs are expensive or why insulin is expensive, one is the monopoly. You have a monopoly and the product over the, on, on, is not a television or an iPhone. It's actually a life-saving drug. So it's not an optional luxury item. That is one. 
Secondly, uh, unlike other countries, we don't negotiate prices of these drugs. We grant them the monopoly, but we don't tell them what's the maximum price they can charge or the fact we don't cap price increases. That's the second problem. The third problem is we have a whole system that actually benefits from a high price so that if the drug is uh, $100 and you have downstream wholesalers, pharmacies, prescription pharmacy benefit managers, everyone gets 10% of that. It's it's better to get 10% of 300 than 10% of 100. So they an increase in the price helps everyone except the patient. Um, then we have patents. I mean, a drug that should have run out of patent in 2010, they can file newer and newer patents and prolong life. Uh, I deal with a drug where they they will negotiate with the competitor to say, please don't come into the market for the next five years. If you come, we'll sue you. If you don't come, we can give you a negotiated uh, either entry time or market share. So there's pay for delay on the patents. Um, and then they silence the influential voices by giving rebates and you know coupons and things like that to keep the out-of-pocket low, so that uh, patients who do have a voice, uh, you know, they they lessen the voice. There's multiple issues why this happens, and the fact that there are multiple reasons for high prices of drugs means it's also not easy to solve because everyone points the finger at the other person. Pharmaceutical companies say it's not our fault, it's the PBMs. The PBMs say it's not their fault. And you, you try to solve one problem, then the other would get worse. And you know how it is in Congress. If you want to have an omnibus bill that kind of solves all problems, that's going nowhere. So it's just been a, it's going to take enormous amount of vision and leadership on the part of our, you know, politicians in our country to make change. This requires major legislative change. Uh, Medicare negotiating at launch, value-based pricing, patent reform, uh, reform of the PBMs and the middlemen. It's not just one piece of the puzzle, but multiple. But things are happening. Advocacy works. That's why Eli Lilly lowered their price. So we keep fighting and things will happen. So, yeah, we can, we can applaud for optimism and hope. <laughs> Um, I want to speak about my breed for a second because politicians are not um, are not neutral actors in the system, and of course you're going to have corporations that are greedy. That shouldn't be news to anybody. But we live in a democracy where hopefully we, through elected officials, actually make decisions of what happens in our country, in our state, in our community. And so the money filters through to politicians through campaign contributions into the influence of lobbyists. Um, so I, I want to recognize it's not just Big Pharma, though they are kind of the root of it. It's their ability through campaign finance laws to influence policy and to stop policy. And that's what you're up against. I remember when I passed our insulin copay cap in Texas, you know, the hearing was in the middle of the day, right, down at the Texas Capitol in the bottom floor, um, two stories underground, right? No, ever, you know, folks with diabetes or folks who care about this issue, working folks um, were at their jobs, right, in their busy lives. And so it was me, and then there were 10 big pharma lobbyists on the other side, right? That was the, that was the battle. Um, and thankfully, we were successful because we had grassroots activists and advocates working every day and building public support for this. Um, and I think that's why you're seeing the change at Eli. So can we talk about that, that announcement? Um, what does that mean in terms of um, our ability to influence 
these corporations? What is what is the public support that we're building and, and the impact that it's having? You know, it's just my personal opinion, but um, I do believe that the advocates had a lot to do with what Eli Lilly has recently announced. Um, but I also think it has, uh, you know, I also think that they did it as PR for themselves. Um, there's also some speculation that it's a part of the um, Inflation Reduction Act that uh, because of the insulin being priced at $35 for people on Medicare, that Eli Lilly is going to have to actually pay $150 of that per vial. So if they go ahead and reduce it, you know, $35 for everybody, then they're not going to have to pay that $150 per vial. So it's cost-saving for them. Um, you know, a lot of times when Eli Lilly does the, and Novo and Sanofi, when they do these patient assistance programs, it's actually a tax deduction for them because it's a charitable contribution that they're making to society to keep their patients alive. So there's a lot of reasons why Eli Lilly has done this. I'm very grateful that they've done it because it's going to help save the lives of some people, not all people, but some. Um, they need to actually lower the price of all of their insulin products, not just the select two that they have chosen. But we also need the other two companies to follow suit. And then we also, you know, we need that federal price cap so that these three companies can't turn around and in three, four years when they think the spotlight is off of them and nobody's talking about insulin affordability anymore, that they're not going to turn around and start creeping that price up because, you know, that's historically what these companies will do. James, I actually have a question for you. From a policy standpoint, you know, this was a decision on their part. And what does that mean? Does that mean they could change the price whenever they want? Yeah, I mean, I think it should it should expose the rot at the center of this problem, which, again, is corporate greed. And um, I completely agree with your assessment, Nicole, that this is a direct result of the movement that y'all have been building on the ground, um, whether through direct advocacy or art. But this is this is the kind of public pressure you're building to put on Eli Lilly and hopefully are going to put on policymakers across the country to finally intervene on behalf of people. The only thing I just I, I worry that because, you know, type one diabetics are uh, maybe perceived as more politically sympathetic right? It's a genetic disease. It happens to young, healthy people. So it makes for very compelling, right, uh, testimony at the Capitol. Well, I think the next challenge is how do we broaden our movement and connect with, um, with other groups and other people around the country who are trying to take the profit motive out of healthcare overall? Because that's ultimately how we're going to build a system that values human beings over profit. So curious about how y'all are thinking about this and how are the things that we're learning in this movement for insulin for all, how can we then hopefully broaden that to be guaranteed healthcare for all? So it's interesting. I, I was in an interview the other day and someone asked me, well, is this film still relevant now because of what Eli Lilly announced? And I said, it's actually more relevant than anything, anything right now, because um, it's, it's really, it shows what happens when, you know, uh, monopolies, come into play and, 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 and make drugs expensive. Um, and I actually think 
the film is going to be a crucial player as we come around to the 2024 elections. I mean, we need to keep the discussion going. Um, and, and not only for insulin. I mean, if we could, like Dr. Rajkumar always says, if we can bring insulin down, we can bring all medications down. So, so again, um, people need to understand that um, in all other developed countries, a, a new drug approval is just one of two steps. You approve the drug, and then you negotiate on the price, step number two. We are the only country which approves the drug, and then there is no negotiation on the price. We also um, have a very profit-driven healthcare system so that um, the, the government doesn't have to pay for insulin or other medications for everyone. So uh, only Medicare can do that, and Medicare is legally prohibited from negotiating price at launch. So that's where the problem actually starts, and um, we need legislation to to fix that problem. On the Eli Lilly announcement, the exact same insulin that they sold in 1999 or 2000 Humalog for $25 is what went up to $300 and what they brought it back down to 25 The fact that they can do the up and the down means you can keep going up again unless there's um, legal changes that, that are passed that prevent this from happening. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act does cap um, price increases. So I think it will apply to Lily's thing as well because they'll probably start from here um, to, the, to, the, to inflation. So they cannot increase it beyond inflation. But that's only for Medicare patients, and they can increase it and pay the rebates, um, the extra cost back to the government. And still for young uninsured people or young people, even with insurance, the price will potentially can go up. So to make this change enduring, you need healthcare policy to be changed. And like Scott was saying, to make it apply to all the other prescription drugs, we again need policy changes. So we can't be satisfied just with Eli Lilly, one company, one drug lowering the price. Um, I want to ask one more question about the film itself and then want to open it up to audience questions. So if there's any questions or comments that you have, um, be thinking about those. Um, you know, one thing I've been struck by uh, is that this issue, I would say, um, prescription drug costs and healthcare access overall is not really a Republican or a Democrat issue because in the in the Texas legislature, we obviously have a Republican majority in both chambers, and I was able to work with my Republican colleagues across the aisle to, to get this bill passed. Um, and that confirms my theory of politics, which is that most issues aren't left versus right, it's top versus bottom, right? It's the folks at the top who are making money off of the divisions between all of us. And once we recognize that we have far more in common, um, we can actually start to take some of that power back. And I think that the, the film is part of that effort of, of building bridges across you know, race or gender or geography or politics or partisanship. Talk about that process and how does that point us forward um, and give us a blueprint for how to build this coalition that's going to take on big pharma and some of the most powerful, wealthy interests in the country? Well, absolutely. The issue is a bipartisan issue. Um, but the, film's, the film is human stories. And as human beings, we relate to other humans. Um, for those of you who haven't seen the film, the film is not just interviews with politicians and doctors. It's, it's we're living in the stories of... Um, 
everyone who's struggling. And people could relate to that, all people, not just one side or the other side. So, um, you know, the hope is, is that people will watch this film and someone knows someone who is struggling and will want to do something. And we've showed this film to politicians on both sides and they tear up. Yeah. Any any comments from y'all before we turn it over to audience questions? One thing I would say is uh, when I was giving a lecture on insulin, I commented that I am probably like I'm a physician, an oncologist, top one person income earner in the number one medical center in the country. And the one thing that I worry about is when I retire, it is possible I get a disease and I cannot afford medicines or healthcare. Because healthcare is so incredibly expensive that unless you've got a hundred million plus asset, there is no way anyone can afford it. So yes, it's not a right a Republican Democratic thing. Everyone has to understand they are not immortal. Everyone's going to get ill, and everyone should realize that you cannot possibly pay your way unless you're you know extraordinarily wealthy. So it's in everyone's best interest, even all congressmen, senators, everyone's best interest for their own health and their families to make sure health care is affordable, to make sure prescription drugs are affordable. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, you know, I in Minnesota, I worked with both Republican and Democrats, and I always, whenever I testified, reminded people that it was not a partisan issue, that, you know, we, we all bleed the same color, blood, and uh, we all have the, the unfortunate... Um, you know, possibility or chances of, you know, getting sick or, you know, getting a chronic illness. Um, and we all need to be able to afford to live. So, yeah. Yeah. And this confirms my experience as a policymaker in that beautiful, terrible pink building of Q blocks from here, the Texas Capitol, um, that it's when we connect as human beings first, um, we can really um, spark transformational change. And I think that's what this this movie can do, um, and that's why I'm so excited to be here with all of you. So, yeah, yeah Nicole. Yeah, I think people can easily relate to the fact that, you know, they, somebody in their family has something, yeah. you know, and it's just, yeah, making that connection and, and making sure that people understand that, you know, it could happen to any of us at any point in our lives. And to Dr. Rajkumar's point, it does happen to all of us at some point in our lives. Um, all of our stories are going to end the same way. So, um yeah, uh, questions Can I here, just I guess the, jump in yes, yes, very, yes. very quickly before we do that. Um, we're just going to play the clip again with the lights down because I know quite a few people had trouble seeing it the first time. So Great. just we're going to play a recap. Wonderful. First is I'm going to take out my old site and disconnect just so that I'm completely disconnected for this process. I don't want to... Always pull the insulin first. So it tells me to remove the cartridge and install a new one. So I'm going to remove the old one. So I just use this little tag here. So you want to hold it like kind of on one side because the cartridge is coming at the other side. Oh my god. Oh my god. What? What? I fucked up. Just give me a second to process. Just hold on. I don't know. Like. I know you don't know. I just need a minute. Just give me a minute. Okay. okay. Pull it like that here, and I'm just gonna give it a good 
see. That made more bubbles. I know, but I got the bubble down from there. Now I'll uh, push those bubbles out. Last time you did it, we wasted a lot of insulin. And this time it was yeah, just as old. Not, you're not looking you're not at what finish. the costs are going to be for, long term. That's for me, where I, I'm not going to be concerned about cost. I'm concerned about my life. Correct. Learning all this stuff Correct. and figuring all this shit out. I don't want to bring money into it. I don't want to think about it. I'm choosing that as a strategic way to keep my mental stability. And money does not help me with that. That will come. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I understand why. But if you keep your head in the sand on the financials, you're going to end up in that if, place. If you really need to know this, I'm going to ask you to do it. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to do the it right now. The metrics that go behind You're making that me feel I guilty need, for not uh, having that information at the ready. You're making me feel guilty that I haven't thought about this. This is your biggest worry. Do it. It's not my biggest worry. My biggest worry is staying alive. Yeah, questions folks have. There's a mic here in the center aisle. Hi, my question for you guys is actually, I, I saw the film yesterday. Thank you all for being here. You're amazing. I have family members that have it. And one of the things you guys haven't talked about, and I kind of wanted you to let people know, is how much the pumps cost for the insulin for the type 1. Please, thank you. Yeah, and also policy uh, should, if it's, uh, it's well-written, apply not just to insulin, but also to all supplies, because it's a whole operation. Who... Who wants to comment on that? I don't know much about, you know, medical devices, but I will say, you know, if we can get insulin at affordable cost, you know, I think the the hard issue with this, and I believe in correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, if you have access to insulin, you could live. You don't need the pumps to live. Yes, it does make our life easier. But the focus right now really needs to be on making sure we can have access to the medication. Uh, because there are people that are not even there yet. There are people that can't even get to the pumps. They need their insulin. Yeah, without without insulin to keep you alive, you have no need for a CGM or a pump. But in Minnesota, we are currently working on a bill that is going to cap the copay for insulin, CGM supplies, testing supplies, pump supplies, those type of things, at $25 a month. So... And test strips, you mentioned that. that yeah, was... test strips can be extremely expensive as well. It's like it's a huge burden for people. Yeah, and I think, not to speak for all the diabetics in the room, but it's hard to communicate just how difficult it is to manage this disease. I think a lot of us know medicine is like a pill you take every day, and you just got to remember to take it every day. This is like a second-by-second, minute-by-minute tightrope that you're trying to walk, right? You go too low, you die. If you go too high, you die, right? Um, and you're trying to walk this path. You're trying to mimic a pancreas, which if your pancreas works in the room, be very thankful for that because um, it's a it's a miraculous organ um, and trying to mimic that as a human being is very difficult if you're trying to do other things, right? My numbers are always best when I don't have anything else going on like when I'm on vacation, <laughs> right? Which that doesn't happen very often, but that's when my numbers are the best because it's, you know, I have other things I have to do, right? Yeah. yeah. And from, to answer your question, from what I understand, a pump can run up to five, $8,000, and they are warrantied for maybe four or five years. 
And then, you know, the monthly supplies. I mean, it's an extremely expensive disease. Yes, with lots of different supplies besides the insulin, although the insulin is key, like Scott said. Yes, next question. Hi, I'm Ariana Misagi. I'm about to start my psychiatry residency. So I just have a question as from the physician perspective and also for the patient perspective, like what you expect and what the ideal physician does in terms of um, thinking about costs and helping the patients navigate that and also tips for patients to get their doctors to think about it for them and, and help them navigate the situation. Yeah. <clears throat> First of all, it is hard for physicians because um, the the cost of a colonoscopy, for example, might vary not only hospital to hospital, but within the same hospital, depending on which insurance company the patient has. The unfairness for like people who are young and uninsured is that it'll probably cost the most because you pay the topmost dollar. Insurance company pay half of that maybe because they've negotiated something. So physicians tell me, I, I can't help because I actually don't know what is the actual cost or how much the patient's going to be paying for it. But having said that, I think if you put in some effort, you can find out and you can also find out whether the patient is someone who needs help uh, and who at your institution can help with that. Uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Rama Warsami at Mayo did a study where she audio taped physician-patient interactions in multiple centers to see how often cost was discussed. And what she found, and she published this, is that very infrequently was cost ever brought up. And if it was brought up, it was usually brought up by the patient, not the physician. And if the patient did bring up the issue of cost, the most frequent response was mm -mm, and change the topic. And this really is something we need to, as physicians, acknowledge this is there is a problem here, partly of lack of knowledge of the price and partly because of time restrictions. But it's there's no excuse for that. We just have to help patients. You saw Kara's story. I mean, how can I possibly tell the patient, here's chemotherapy information for you and you've just been diagnosed with multiple myeloma go friend for yourself? That's, that's not fair either. So... It's hard, but that doesn't mean it cannot be over, overcome with the time, effort, having a team approach to medicine with the nurses and nurse practitioners helping you. But realistically, if you think about it, we as Americans don't feel comfortable talking about money or being able to afford something or not being able to afford something. There's so much shame around admitting that you can't afford it. And then when you think about having to admit to your doctor that you can't afford the medication that they're prescribing you to stay alive, it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable situation. So yeah, I think both patients and doctors need to do a better job at communicating, having open relationship or open dialogue of the true cost of, of their healthcare. And I think it's just being willing to go on this journey with you, right? Um, because I think the worst thing you can do is throw all this information at this person who's received this this traumatic news and then send them on their way and wish them well, right? Um, I remember my, my the hospital I was at, thankfully, had a diabetes educator um, who had had these conversations with many people. And I remember, like, she would answer a call or a text um, 
in those first few weeks when I was trying to figure this out and I'd forgotten everything they told me in the hospital um, and did it with such compassion and empathy and and that that changed the whole experience that I had. So thankful for her, still thankful five years later for her. Um, so physicians and nurses and um, diabetes educators, they can really um, have a huge impact on how people deal with this, this news. David. Okay, first of all, for Nicole, as a professional political scientist, I'll apologize for the discipline that, it, that you had a bad political science course. I promise all of them are not that bad. I, do, I, I, I make sure my students have a good experience with political science. Thank you. So, um, but more, more seriously, uh, my friend James, uh, I, I, I've called your, your bill a small miracle in that you got a bill like that through the Texas House and Senate, for those of you who, who are from out of town, <laughs> the heathens run this place. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it is, you know, the most conservative MAGA Republicans run, run this. And I guess my, my question to you is, how did you manage to create some bipartisanship around this issue? Because we see so, so little of it in the Texas legislature. I mean, how were you able to, I mean, literally get Republicans to support price controls, which goes against the basic ideology that, you know, the government should stay out of, you know, uh, you know should not regulate business. Uh, you know, and, and what, what can we learn from that experience? And if anyone else wants to chime in as well, but, you know, uh, Nicole in particular, but you know, what can we learn from your experience of building some you know, bipartisan consensus on th this issue? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, short answer is because MAGA Republicans get sick too. Um, and MAGA Republicans have diabetes too or have someone they love who, have, who has diabetes. And back to Scott's point about connecting on that human level and sharing our experiences through our stories I think is critical. And any good organizer on any issue will tell you that's exactly how you make transformational change is connecting with other people and always working with a, an, an, an open hand instead of a closed fist, right? Um, I always try to treat every person at the Capitol, every colleague I have, no matter how different they are for me politically, as a potential ally. I always walk into the, their office thinking of them as a potential ally. And I think that's helpful not to shut, because we can prejudge before we walk into a legislator's office what they're going to think on an issue. But in, in, in fact, some of those very conservative Republicans were offended by this monopoly, that there wasn't free market competition, right? Now, that's not something I would have thought, right, walking in as a progressive Democrat. Um, that's not necessarily how I would think about the issue, because I think money is at the root cause of this, and that's the evil that we're trying to combat. But I was glad that they, they had a problem with this system from a conservative uh, or from a free market standpoint. Um, so again, I would think being a good organizer and treating everyone as a potential ally can be really helpful, not just on this issue, but every issue, but you've done this in more States than I have. Um, so I'm curious how you think about uh, bringing people together who are unlikely allies yeah. in Minnesota. You know, we had a split legislature when, when we were working on Alex bill and we found it, um, not as difficult as we anticipated on one hand, um, because it was a, a human rights issue. It was, you know, life or death issue. And that's what I kept reminding people when I would testify that this is, you know, a human rights violation. Um, this is a life or death situation. Um, we all have the right to affordable 
you know, access to health care and our medications, and we should not be discriminating against those who are unfortunate enough to not have the privilege of having insurance. Um, you know, we did have a few, um, <clears throat> you know, at the time our Senate was GOP, and we did have a few uh, legislators um, in high-ranking positions who we did unfortunately have to go and publicly shame um, on social media and through the, the press um, shortly after they were completely embarrassed by their behavior, we did have their support. So sometimes that does work. <laughs> Can I make one? Yes, of course. On, on the facts, uh, I want to make two points. One is the most common myth that is thrown around is that you shouldn't have price controls and it's going to be a market will take care of it. But it, this prescription drug prices is the opposite of a free market. We grant a monopoly and we grant a prolonged monopoly that they can prolong even further with patent um, you know, prolongations. So we have given them the gift of monopoly. In return, we need some control on how high the price can be. And the second thing that they tell is that any attempt to do any kind of what they call price control, which it isn't, would backfire and hurt innovation. And I keep telling them again, and that's at least one thing that they cannot pull with me because I have done many randomized control trials, is it will not. It actually, the ability to charge a high price, regardless of how good the drug is in the US, is what prevents truly innovative drugs from coming out because they take the safe and easy way. Just make a slightly better insulin, make a slightly better sleeping pill, a slightly better blood pressure pill, and you can charge a high price. And rather than a truly innovative risk-taking approach where you can charge a high price because you've got a high value. So value-based pricing is really important. Wonderful. Yes, sir. Um, one of the questions I had is, there's so much uh, public information about campaign contributions. We know that one of the ways that pharma and the healthcare industry prevents bills from passing is by donating to people's campaigns. But I guess my question is, it's not that much money that people are getting. You know, $50,000, $100,000, like what else? We Nicole, you talked about the tactics that pharma uses, what are we not seeing? You're not seeing that um, many people in Washington, D.C. actually own stock in pharma industry. So they have no financial reason to uh, put price controls in place because it's going to lower their profits. And also remember that money is filtered through a lot of different entities. I think of here in Texas, at least lobby groups, some of the biggest Lobby groups who make huge regular campaign contributions and have a lot of influence in the building work for Big Pharma, in addition to working for other clients, but they do work for Big Pharma. Um, so it's not always a, you know, you have to, you have to be a sophisticated um, analyst of how money is filtered through a certain political system. And, it's so, and because this is happening at the state level, sometimes it's hard to understand exactly what the dynamics are unless you're on the ground. So... But if you are an organizer working in a certain state, I would recommend thinking about doing that kind of power analysis um, of where is the money coming from and how is it filtered through if you're going to be effective at combating it. Yeah, it would be really difficult yes, yes, yes. to be a legislator and to vote against 
bills that like price control, um, like our utilities, but yet you own stock in, uh, you know, the electric company. So we have uh, one of the movie stars here, uh, <laughs> nominated for best actress. Uh, um, tell us, uh, tell us about your experience in the in the film. But then, if you have a question, yeah. Oh well, the the film uh, Scott and Rachel coming through and COVID. I was kicked out of the ICU and was left to my own devices with a stack of paperwork that wasn't really relevant to what I had. Um, so having them film and be part of this was not only an honor, but it saved my life mentally um and they were able to teach me what i what both joseph and i were missing um they put the pieces together for that puzzle um but my question is actually for you james and for you nicole um if i wanted to go to look i live in nashville tennessee and i have word vomit and i tend to go off subject So is there a type of script that all of us could really kind of go off of with some inserts to have our human part and the empathy come through, but stay focused to really advocate, but not word vomit? Yeah, I'm going to let Nicole take this, but I just I I want you to um, I want to thank you for being um, brave enough to let people into that moment. Um, I know I would not have been brave enough to let a camera into one of the most traumatic parts of my life. and But I'm so thankful that you are strong enough to do that because I think it will be transformative. Um, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, I think this is, one, I think it's really important to be thinking about what is your pitch and practicing your pitch because you're right. You usually don't have a lot of time and you got to make that connection fast. Again, this is why art is important because in a way you're like an artist as an organizer and it's how do you create that connection com- with a compelling um, clear, uh, succinct message um, with different audiences. So I think you're thinking about this the right way. You should be practicing. You should have it down before you start walking into state houses. But curious, um, Nicole, what you've seen work. Yeah, you give yourself a two-minute window because typically when you're testifying, it's they give you two minutes. Um, and it's figuring out what the bill is actually for. You know, if it is it a copay cap bill, is it a price cap bill, is it you know a driver's license bill, whatever, um, you're going to get a condensed, very short but very precise version of your story written, and you're going to you know do whatever you can to convey that you know story so that you are going to somehow get the audience to to empathize with you it's difficult and it does make a difference if it's are you writing is it a written testimony or is it in-person testimony if it's you know a federal bill or a state bill i mean there's a lot that come into it and you know if you go online there's a lot of pre-written form letters that like you know send this send this pre-written form letter to your senator asking for you know them to support a bill those you know we can we can connect and we can sit down and we can do this in person (laughs) but i think the key is the story the human element is the most important part and honestly as a policymaker you know i hear testimony and i have meetings with people all day long about so many different areas right criminal justice reform infrastructure highways public education right um healthcare and the things that I walk away from that building with at the end of the day are those stories, right? That's what connects with me. I won't remember the data points 
or the factoid, right? Or the bullets. Like that's, those are important. You should have them, but just don't let those crowd out that connection you're going to build with somebody. And you know how to build, all of you have built connections in your life, right? With your family, with your friends at work. It's the same thing in a capital. Don't let the pretty building and the suits freak you out. It's the same thing you do in your regular life. Yeah. Stats go on page two. You can <laughs> do an attachment, yep. but yeah, your yep. story comes first. That's right. Wonderful. Well, I think we're out of time. And Just, oh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Before we go, uh, there's a little uh, postcard on your seat. Um, if you want to help and get more involved and want to, you know, uh, come on the journey, just you can go to our website and there's plenty of resources, facts, um, and you can sign up to our newsletter. <laughs> well, please help, join me in a round of applause for these amazing panelists. <laughs>